This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. It's, this is going to be a really interesting segment because this segment is all based on the frequently asked questions that you get at Sands & Associates. And, and we're really going to cover a huge sort of swath of them. Uh, and I love the idea, Blair, that you're one of those people and... I get that you're honest and sincere when you say it, that there is no such thing as a stupid question. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I've heard it said, the only stupid question is the one you don't ask. I love that, because that's the biggest thing, right? Folks are hesitant to look, to either ask questions or look for answers to the questions, because afraid of being judged, assume they should already know the answer. That's one of my things. I should mm-hmm. know the answer to this already. O- or responses, or afraid of the responses that you might get. Uh, but in reality, bankruptcies, consumer proposals, we're talking about if you're in debt or you know someone who is, these are good answers uh, for folks that are needing help. So let's start with the first one. Can I avoid bankruptcy uh, but still deal with my debts? Yeah, in, in almost every case, Elaine, the, an- the answer is yes there. So bankruptcy is always a last resort, and it always depends on how early you identify an issue because that's when you have a lot more options. You know, if you're being taken to court and, you know, they're threatening to seize your wages or things like that, you've got fewer options at that point. But if you identify that you've got a problem early enough, there are different things that you can do. You know, one is to approach your bank for a traditional debt consolidation. If you're not delinquent on payments, if you've still got some assets, you know, sometimes your bank will help you and putting all your debt together, taking your interest rate from what might be 18, 20%, maybe down to, you know, eight or 10%. Massive change. If you still keep those payments the same, you've just cut your interest rate massively and then you can see, start to see some daylight. Can I ask you a question about that? How yep. often do you see that, see that happen? For folks? Not often. Okay. Yeah. For most people to get a consolidation loan, they either have to have a lot of equity in their house um, or they need to have, you know, some asset that the bank can secure because quite often the bank is not going to advance new money um, where they're not sure they're going to get paid if you if you default on it. Right. So it does work sometimes. I have people come in and clearly they've got a lot of equity in their house. They'll have no problem getting a consolidation loan and that is the answer for them. But for folks who have no assets, even if their credit is perfect and they've got a great relationship with the bank, consolidation consolidation loan can be pretty tough to get. And sometimes, you know, not to say this is a solution that brings a problem, but sometimes it does, that if you consolidate that debt, sometimes it doesn't force you to deal with the underlying issues of why you got into debt in the first place. If suddenly, hey, you can afford these payments again, and then what I've seen is, you know, the consolidation loan is where it is, and then sometimes the other cards start to go back up to where they were again. Got it. So I've seen people, you know, sometimes over a period of years, they've had to pull equity out or consolidate from their home equity, you know, multiple times, and they're just literally mortgaging their future. When they sell that house, they're not going to have the the asset that they should have had there. So consolidating your debts doesn't sound like a super great idea, the best of the bunch. 
it, as long as you do it with a clear sense, you're going to pay off the consolidation, you're going to not incur that debt again, it can make sense. But yeah, it, it's definitely for most people, it's not going to be a very solid answer. For the average person. Yeah, I would yeah. say for, for more people, you know, for people that don't have any assets and they, you know, really feel like they can't afford their debts, sometimes doing nothing is actually the right answer. Hmm. Yeah. How's that? How does that work? Well, so there's a thing called the Statute of Limitations or the BC Limitations Act in BC. And if you've got a debt and you know you'll never be able to clear it, you just know, hey, I can make these payments until I, I leave this, this green earth. Um, what the BC Limitations Act says, if you stop paying on that debt, your creditors can't hold you accountable for the rest of your life. They can't threaten to sue you. They can't, you know, take you to court forever. They've got to decide within two years, are they going to take formal action against you to force you for payment? Keep in mind, if you've got no assets and minimal income, they're probably not going to do that, but they have to decide within two years of that. If you keep making minimum payments over time, all you're doing is making sure that they never lose that right to take you to court. Got it. You're extending that two-year period indefinitely, and that's why sometimes if you, you know, you phone the credit card company and say, you know what, I don't think I can make any payments. They say, okay, just pay something, pay $50 a month, pay 25 a month. Are they being compassionate? Yes. But are they being self-interested? Absolutely. Because that's resetting the limitations period every time you make a payment. Got it. So it's from the last day you file, they've got, sorry, the last day that you pay on that account, two years is when they have to decide if they're ever going to force you to pay. If it's two years plus a day, they can still ask you for payment, but if they ever tried to take you to court, it would be thrown out. Okay, but that sort of would limit my uh, opportunity to do business with them again or have credit card with them or... Yeah, with, right? that, with that particular bank. Now, they're probably not going to like you very much in the short term, but yeah, in the long term, there's many other banks that are out there. And again, this is a subset of folks who have minimal income and no assets. You know, sometimes it's a 75-year-old senior citizen where I explain, you know, if you keep making these payments, you're going to be no better off. If you stop making these payments, they're not going to sue you and you're going to be better off in the future. Wow. Okay. Mm -hmm. And then the one that we always talk about that I just think is fabulous is the consumer proposal idea. Yeah, definitely. So, you know, for many people, they think they come into the office, they know they can't pay the debts off in full, and they know they can't consolidate their debts, and they think those are their only options. The, the next step is bankruptcy. Absolutely not. For two-thirds of people that we see, they make a consumer proposal, which anyone who's listened to the show knows exactly what it is. But, you know, in 30 seconds here, it's yeah. you make a deal where you agree to pay off usually about a third of the debt with no interest, no additional charges, and you get up to five years to pay off that reduced amount. So it's numbers like taking $40,000 of debt, down to $13,000 and the person pays, you know, $220 a month. And you facilitate that we for me. We facilitate the entire process. Sands and Associates yeah. does that. Um, so we talked about, by just talking about the consumer proposal, it's not the same as a debt settlement or, or is it? Well, so debts, terms, yeah, right? debt settlement's a bit of a, a loaded term. So in simple terms, debt settlement means, hey, you dealt with your debts, they're settled and you're out of debt. So a consumer proposal is that. Is but that? what debt settlement often means is where you'll work with a company who's not a trustee and what they'll say is, hey, we're going to get you a reduction in debt, you know, down to, you know, 10 or 20 or 30 cents on the dollar. So it sounds like a consumer proposal, but it's totally different. A consumer proposal, everything is done by the law. Everything goes into a trust account. It's only available through a trustee. 
debt settlement, it's usually unlicensed providers. You pay them a bunch of money for fees and there's no guarantee of success. In a proposal, you know you've got a deal in the first 45 days and that's it. In debt settlement, you might pay for years, you might pay a bunch of fees and at the end of the day have no good result. There's nothing guaranteed about it. So we're doing frequently asked questions to Sands and Associates. One of them is, can I keep my house and car if I file for personal bankruptcy? Right. Most people would say, no, you got to lose your house and your car and the trustee shows up and takes everything. Almost every case, people are able to retain their house and their car. So okay. let, let's talk about why, right? Yeah, please. So yeah, first off, if you got a car, most of us these days have financed our cars. And, you know, as soon as you drive the car off the lot, you know, if the car was worth 20000 your financing was 20000 If you tried to sell that car a couple months later, you probably still owe 19000 but the car is worth 15000 It depreciates so quickly. Very fast. So for just about any vehicle that's financed, you're actually in a negative equity situation. So someone files for bankruptcy, and if we look at, you know, the car is worth $10,000 and they owe fifty thousand dollars on it it's their option if they want to keep the car or not if they want to keep making the payments because they like the car and they know it's you know they're going to pay more than what it's worth but they're okay with that bankruptcy is not going to step in the way conversely if they said hey i owe more on the car than what it's worth bankruptcy allows them to walk away from the car get something different not be held accountable to that debt but there's nothing automatic about losing your car in a bankruptcy now if you've got you know a classic car you got you know a Porsche spider worth hundreds mm. of thousands of dollars yeah I'm sorry ladies and gentlemen if you file for bankruptcy I have to auction off that car right but the court order enforcement act of BC says that every BC resident is entitled to one vehicle worth up to five thousand dollars after all encumbrances so you could get another car out yeah. in the in that case exactly okay yeah um, now a consumer proposal how does it impact my spouse that's a great question to ask yeah the answer is generally not at all um, so again most people are very concerned you know if one spouse has a bunch of debt issues and the other spouse has managed everything you know in a different way and has perfect credit is one spouse dealing with debt going to tank the other person's credit absolutely not now, how often do you run into that situation where one person is incredibly uh, fastidious about their mm-hmm. debts and, and, and how they run their finances and the other one isn't? It's like an Oscar and Felix thing. How more, often do you run across that? More often than not, I, really? would, I would say, yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Oh, yeah, no. I wouldn't lo- have guessed. A lot of clients, when, when they come in, you can see that there's two solitudes. There's, you know, one partner with the spreadsheets, everything very, very identified, you know, okay. very set out, and another partner with the shoebox full of receipts, and, and we, we go oh, through it. So it's interesting, too, as part of either a bankruptcy or a proposal proposal is you've got to come for counseling. So we talk about the different relationships people have with money. You know, some people, they literally hate money. Some people fear it. Some people love it. And it's understanding your relationship with it often dictates how you're going to organize your life. Got it. So again, back to the question, consumer proposal affect my spouse? No. Yeah. So any debts that you have, um, if you're compromising them, it hits your credit rating. It does not impact your spouse one iota. Even if we're married and have the same name and all that stuff. No issue with that. The only potential impact is if there's a debt that you are both joint on. Okay. Okay. So if you both owe MasterCard or Visa, whatever, and one person does a consumer proposal, the other person is going to still have to pay that debt right? Because it's a joint debt and we're only dealing with one person in the proposal, right? So as long as the other person keeps up on those obligations, they would be fine. There's no impact. Usually a better idea is we look at the entire family and we do a joint proposal. So we make sure if both partners have debt that we're dealing with everything. If only one partner has debt, guaranteed there is no impact to this the spouse who is not in debt or who is managing things just fine. Okay. 
Another question that comes up all the time for you is, what are the fees? What do I have to pay you, Sands & Associates, to create a consumer proposal for me and then and then look after, support me for those three years, uh, or, you know, support my journey, I yeah. should probably say. So what's the cost? Well, one way to look at it is your creditors actually pay all the cost. So when we do a consumer proposal, we base it on what do we think you can afford to pay back and you offer that amount back to your creditors. So if you owe $20,000 and we think you can afford to pay back $6,000, that's all you pay back. We get paid out of that amount and the balance goes to your creditors. So every dollar that a trustee collects goes into a trust account. And before we pay out money to the people that you owe money to, the government says, here's what can be retained for trustee fees. So in general, it's roughly 20% of what you pay into the proposal is trustee fees. Roughly 80% of what you pay into the proposal goes to the debts. And again, everything is set up right from the start. If we say the proposal is $200 a month, that's inclusive of everything you're ever asked to pay. And you've, and you, one, one thing I've heard you say is that uh, you will never, you will never pay more than what you're supposed to, mm-hmm. but sometimes you end up paying less. Yeah. So in many times in a consumer proposal, um, you know, we will be able to get a deal that's even gr- greater than what we thought, you know, even better than we thought we'd have to go in at 30 cents on the dollar. As we look a little bit closer, we see, well, you know, actually we can go in at 20 cents or 25 cents or something like that. So our objective is to make a deal that someone can afford, that's reasonable to everybody, but it's not to maximize the amount that you have to pay back. We're not an agent of the creditors. We're an independent court officer helping you access a legal remedy. This sounds like a good idea. If you're in a pickle and you need some help, Sands and Associates, that's where you go. It's very easy to get a hold of them. Sands-trustee.com is the website. The number, 1-800-661-3030 for a free consultation or to find an office near you. We'll be back with more right after this. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. It's always so great to have someone on the show, a real person who's gone through something and not only survived, but benefited from all the, from the hard experience and all the hard work, whether it be through a bankruptcy or a consumer proposal. Sometimes, you know, their situation can resonate with you and you get an idea or it feels familiar. Uh, we're, we feel so fortunate to have Tom on the show with us. He's, uh, Tom is a client of Sands & Associates, uh, wanted to come forward and tell his story in the hopes of helping others as well. Uh, so thank you, Tom, so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. Hey, Tom, I wonder, can you tell me a little bit about the situation that brought you to Sands & Associates? What was going on in your life? You know, what were you experiencing? And, and then what was it like to reach out for help? Oh, well, it started with um, being uh, unexpectedly taken out of work due to a medical situation, okay. which then dragged on for long enough to cause financial stress. Yeah, and was this a I workplace in- injury, something where, you know, you're getting your income replaced, or is there, there was a big income interruption there? Uh, it was in- uh, income interrupted. Um, it wasn't proven to be a work-related injury. What it was mm. was I had a severe shoulder problem and needed surgery for correction. Uh, it was not covered by WorkSafe BC. It was not covered by any work insurance. I was on EI for a couple of months on what they call medical EI, but it's a very short period EI. And when I was cut off of that, I was basically left on my own to um, 
work out my finances while waiting ever so patiently for our BC medical system to um, to take note of me. Hmm. And it doesn't. And while it's an awful situation for you, Tom, I bet it's not a super unusual situation for folks to find themselves in. No, it's not. And we're all kind of at risk of something like this if you don't plan ahead, which I had not. So when this came about, I did not have much savings in my account. Um, it's something that, you know, it was a hard lesson to learn, to plan for the unexpected. It's a good idea to just salt away a small percentage of your paycheck every year, every, every paycheck for that matter, mm-hmm. into a separate account that you might call your emergency account. And it might grow for 20 years without ever being touched, or it might be two years in and all of a sudden something happens that you need that money that you put aside. So that's really the lesson learned about that. You know, and and while I appreciate the fact that y- that you were able to learn that lesson, um, I doubt that very many folks, even one, think about it, or if they've thought about it, are even able to do that. So it's, uh, well, you know, it's pretty special you're, you're situation. You're onto something right there, um, and it depends on your geographics. Like, I live in the Lower Mainland, and as we know, the Lower Mainland is one of the most expensive places to live. The yeah. cost of living compared to income is quite extreme. The cost of housing, whether you're renting or paying a mortgage, is a higher percentage of your income than most anywhere else in the country. So you're right. It's really, really hard to budget in such a way that you have any money left over at the end of the month to to just put aside and forget about. So yeah, it can be, uh, you know, living from paycheck to paycheck is not uncommon for a lot of the workforce. And, and Tom, I wonder if you're comfortable sharing numbers or even just percentages. You know, what was the the magnitude of the shock to your income? You know, I assume you're earning, you know, pretty decent money to start, and then suddenly, um, you know, medical EI is is not great, and then after that, you know, even lower income. So, what what was that like in terms of you know either amounts or percentages? Okay, I can give a quick rundown of my story. What it is is I actually am I'm married without children. Um, there's a bit of an extra financial strain to to my situation. My wife is on long-term disability. She has MS and she cannot work. So she has a very, very low income through an insurance company. It barely covers a couple of bills. Uh, So basically, I'm supporting both of us. My income is fairly decent in a normal two-income family, but unfortunately, we're more of a a one-and-a-half income family. I'm around, I'll just give you the numbers, actually. I'm around 70 to 75,000 a year Mm -hmm. uh, before taxes. That's my gross income. Uh, I'm in the construction business and have to follow that market so it can fluctuate from year to year. And due to the, the cost of income, yeah, it was very difficult to to live within our means of the income that we had in combined income. So Yeah, we get yeah, it. When the, when the medical situation arose, I was not prepared in the sense that I did not even go into debt until after three months of not being in work. Now, when the EI ran out, this is the part a lot of people have a hard time wrapping their their mind around. I went from a small income, the EI covered less than half of my normal wage, to zero income. And when I say zero income, I mean literally zero income. There was no insurance coverage. There was no uh, WCB coverage. There was no, I mean, I even went to the welfare office and applied to welfare to see if I could get any help there because I literally had 0.00 coming in every month for six months. And yet I had to cover rent, food, bills, 
gas, you know, to typical expenses that everybody has. And Tom, I, I want to make sure, um, you know, the listeners can really understand where you're at now, because that sounds like, you know, a pretty tough situation. Can you take me through, you know, the, the steps uh, where you reached out for help and, you know, where you are today? Because I know you're in a much better spot now. I'm afraid you're cutting in and out a little bit there, Ronnie. Oh, apologies there, Tom. I, w- I was wondering uh, for our listeners, um, would you be able to give a sense of kind of where things are at now? Because I'm aware they're significantly oh. better. And, you know, when you reached out for help, how did that go? And was that something, you know, that really made a difference? Okay. Well, I didn't reach out for help right away. I went down that rabbit hole of borrowing more and more money until there was no more money to borrow and no way of paying it back. Uh, I then, and all this time, I'm on this waiting list hoping that the surgery is going to show up and save my wallet, uh, which didn't happen. Uh, Then when I realized that I was in real financial trouble, I phoned my creditors and let them know that I'm sorry, but until I go back to work, I simply cannot pay you back or even make a payment. Uh, It took a bit for them to wrap that around their head because they said, you know, even a small payment would make a difference. No, it's a a zero income. Mm So anyway, I started looking at my options. Um, I'd had heard of personal bankruptcy, so I explored that. I talked with a friend who had gone through a trustee and had his experience with that uh, a number of years ago. So I approached a trustee at that time. This is probably about two months before my surgery. Uh, And the one hitch to dealing with whether you declare bankruptcy or you do a consumer proposal, you do have to have some sort of income because you need to make a monthly payment towards your bankruptcy or towards your consumer proposal, no matter how small that is, it's going to be a percentage of, of your income. So when you start at zero, there's, there's nothing you can do until you, until you can acquire some sort of income. So I had to wait until I went back to work before I reapproached Sands and Associates and said, okay, I'm back to work part-time. There's my situation. And Everything went uphill from there quite nice. quickly. Yeah, and Tom, do you mind sharing what we were able to help you with? Obviously, respecting your confidentiality, I haven't you know given any background here. Uh, but... The experience actually was quite amazing. I don't mean to sound like a, a sponsor promoting <laughs> your company, but I got to tell you, the being set at ease and the the non judgmental uh, atmosphere and approach yes. that uh, your staff has is absolutely amazing. Um, after my first meeting, I mean, uh, I walked out of there feeling a hundred times better. At that point, I was very stressed. I was very depressed, uh, you know, really feeling like I, I was trapped with no way out. And within the first meeting, I didn't feel that way anymore. Once I got everything established and chose a consumer proposal over a bankruptcy because I could, and I would recommend to people that if you can do that option, uh, use bankruptcy as your last option, not your first one. If you can do a consumer proposal, it's it's a it's a better way to go. You might end up paying a bit more back, but you'll also not be as financially hooped and shall we say credit hooped. Like your your credit rating takes a much bigger hit with a bankruptcy than it does with a consumer proposal. I just want to jump um, in at this point, Tom, because we we're just running out of time. Um, yeah, no worries. Th- the consumer proposal, you went and saw Sands and & Associates, and, and that's what they were able to work out with you, was doing the consumer proposal. And I just want to remind the listener, if there's anything in Tom's story that resonates with you, 
and uh, you're thinking that this may be uh, the path that you want to take, uh, first go to their website at sands-trustee.com. There's just loads of good information there that, that'll give you even more information to take that next step. The 1-800 number to get a free consultation, that's your first consultation, and to find an office, 1-800-661-3030. And like I say, to find that Sands & Associates office near you. We'll be back with more right after this. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. And we're going to start off, first of all, Blair, some things or trends that you're seeing right now mm-hmm. that you haven't necessarily seen before. Yeah, so one definite one that, that's just happened in this last, last month is anybody that owes Golden Ears Bridge tolls, uh, you're about to get a bit of a surprise. Um, so what happened is with our new NDP government, as we're all aware, tolls have been stopped on, you know, the Portman and Golden Ears for quite some time. Um, but there has been, you know, an office, an infrastructure where they've been trying to collect on the debts and so on and so forth. Uh, what's happened is just last week I was speaking to these folks in their last couple of days of work there. Um, it's now just a collection agency. So if you owe the government money for Golden Ears tolls, um, don't expect to call the province of BC anymore. Expect that you will be dealing with a collection agency. Um, and I would expect that your discussion are probably going to be a lot less friendly than somebody who you clearly pay their salary with the government. A collection agent um, is going to have a little bit of a different objective, that of getting as much money back as possible, as quick as possible. Wow. Okay. So when you're saying golden ears, Mm -hmm. so I mean, I think one one trip across was what, $3? Three something, I think, yeah. So, but this, I mean, would they be going after somebody like me who doesn't use the bridge very often uh, to the person who uses it? two or three or four times a day like or, or is or is it is everybody fair game on this you know i think there'll be some you know materiality threshold if you owe them six bucks i don't think you're going to hear too much um, but i would think you know anything that's above you know about a hundred bucks or something like that i would expect you'd at least get a letter um, but definitely if you've got something where you were driving the bridge and for whatever reason you were commuting you just never paid and you owe thousands of dollars um, if things have been quiet for a period of time they might have been these last you know few months or a year um, i would expect them to heat up again quickly so if you're in a situation with a lot of golden ears bridge tolls you start to get collector calls not the end of the world it just means the debt's basically been given off to a collector but it is something that you're going to want to deal with so obviously give us a call at sands or reach out to another trustee uh, and definitely a trustee can help you move forward on that excellent okay what's these what's the second trend it says vehicle financing how's that a trend haven't we always had vehicle financing well we definitely have but if you remember or at least definitely I remember when I was getting my license you know it was three-year payments typically you're gonna finance a car you know three years four years maybe five years something like that um, so um, so you know definitely what we've seen is that the term of financing has extended in such a big way um, so I'm going to talk about an example in a, in a little bit here of the client that I was helping out, but I'm regularly seeing advertising of seven-year financing terms, 84 months, um, you know, even as much as eight years or 96 months. Uh, it just seems insane to me that you know an asset, especially a car, depreciates so rapidly, you're still going to be making payments seven or eight years after you've purchased it. You know, hopefully, you've still got a good vehicle at that point, but you know, maybe not. Um, so it just seems, you know, we're really chasing a low monthly payment. And, you know, even now I've seen dealerships are quoting, you know, a biweekly payment or a weekly payment, even almost a daily payment, you know, just to really make it seem like the number is small, but they're obscuring the whole 
longer term, which means that you know vehicles are more expensive than ever and you're going to be paying a lot over the term. Okay, so pay attention to the length of the term that they're suggesting or wanting or demanding that you sign up for. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's see an example. Yeah, so definitely one example I wanted to, to talk about for this month, uh, and it's when it's right on point with vehicle financing. Uh, this was an example where I was actually called um, by an individual and his mom, um, which you know some, sometimes happens because he's a relatively young guy. So um, he was age 20, and he was driving a 95 Toyota Corolla, which was clearly you know giving up the ghost. It wasn't doing what he needed anymore. Um, he went in on his own to a car dealership and by his own admission, he says, you know, they saw me coming. Um, you know, they definitely thought, okay, this is someone that, you know, perhaps they can put into, you know, a really nice truck, a nice, nice vehicle. Um, and he, but by his own admission, you know, just didn't say no enough. So what happened is he walked out of the dealership with a deal for a 2017 full size pickup for total loan payments of get this $77,332 divided over the next eight years. That's well. First of all, and it's uh, it's an age related thing for me. Mm-hmm. I can't imagine paying over seventy seven thousand dollars for a vehicle. Right. To me, that's just crazy. Right. But monthly payments of over uh, of around eight hundred and five dollars. Yeah. And then you've got here plus insurance costs. Yeah, you've still got to insure this vehicle. You got to put gas in it, maintain it, and insure it. So and we, the gas alone. Oh man, that's yeah, a crazy gas amount on a of money. Size pickup, and you know, and if you can afford all this, it makes sense. But sure. the challenge is, uh, the individual that came to see me, unfortunately, he couldn't afford it. Um, so you know, his monthly income was just about two twenty two hundred dollars per month. He was living on his own, and his rent was about half of that. It was about a thousand dollars, which is pretty pretty good rent rate well, if you can get it. Yeah, and it's scary to say that a thousand dollars a month is good rent these days. Right, but, but unfortunately, in, that is the case. Yeah. But in the lower mainland. Yeah. Holy moly. So a couple days after he had signed the vehicle, you know, he wasn't sure is there some cooling off period or things like that. So he went back to the dealership and just said, you know what, guys, I clearly, I got caught up in the emotion. I made a mistake. You know, can we unwind this deal or figure out getting me into some vehicle I can afford? Um, They basically, it was night and day, you know, there was his best friend when he's buying the vehicle, but they wanted nothing to do with him. They wouldn't help him at all. They basically said, you know, you've got to find out a way to pay this loan um, or you can just, you know, sell the vehicle, pay a bunch down and, you know, pay it off over time. But either way, we're getting our money, we being the car dealership. Now, one side of me says I have a little uh, little uh, being on my shoulder. Well, let's say let's say out loud who this dealership is. Mm -hmm. But my bet is that they all operate this way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're not unusual to do it this way. Yeah, this was definitely the, the most egregious example I've seen of somebody getting into a vehicle that they just should not have gotten approved for. But, you know, definitely there are other examples, other dealerships where I'm sure sometimes maybe pushing towards month end, you know, you push through a deal that maybe it's, it's on the bubble and maybe shouldn't get approved, but, you know, you get it through there. Right. But, you know, for the client that got that deal, especially in this case, you know, it wasn't a positive thing. Um, so he came in to see me just incredibly distraught. You know, he's age 20 years old. He thought he'd made a lifelong mistake or at least the next, you know, eight, 10 years was going to have, you know, no financial flexibility whatsoever. Um, and we actually looked at, well, what would happen if you were to sell the truck? And I remember this moment um, because I pulled up a black book value and yes. we knew he was going to say, you know, he was going to have to pay $77,000 over eight years. So I said, you know, if I were to seize this truck and put it to auction, what's the black book tell me? Right. $31,600. Which is less than half. Less than half. So of what we, it costs. So we know things depreciate when you drive them off the lot, but that was massive. Yeah. And again, this is auction, you know, maybe retail might be about 10 higher, so we're still low 40s, but right. nowhere near the amount of payments he would be making over the next seven or eight years. Or if you sell it privately, I know you can often do better than, than buy back from a dealership or certainly than auction value, but still, 
uh, you're not ever going to get that money back, that 77000 yeah. yeah. So things looked pretty bleak for him. And then also in the meeting we uncovered, you know, he had been overspending a bit. He owed about $11,600 to, you know, to another bank on a credit card. You know, again, just some mismanagement overspending early in sure. his career. Sure. Typical stuff. So what did we do? Yeah, well, what did you do? The first thing is I gave him the power of information, Elaine. I said, <laughs> the dealership is never going to tell you this, but there's a provision of the law in BC that says if you are financing a consumer good like a truck or a car or anything like that and you haven't used it for business, if you're not able to pay the loan, if you stop paying, generally the dealership is going to have to take the vehicle back and as much as they might yell and scream that you're going to be held accountable for the shortfall on the loan, in the province of BC they can't do that. So very, very clearly, if they seize a vehicle for you because you haven't been paying on it, that's the end of the story. They cannot recover the difference from you. So does that impact my other, the, my other, par, the other parts of my credit, though? It does. It's not okay. a good thing because it's a repossession, okay. right? So All obviously, right. Uh, and nobody's saying, you know, that there was you know, dishonesty here. You know, maybe the dealership could have done a better job of explaining things. Sure. But at the end of the day, the client signed on to an agreement. And if you don't, if you're not able to honor that agreement, it does take a hit on your credit. But what we also did is we figured out, let's solve the whole problem here. There's about eleven or $12,000 of consumer debt. There's a $77,000 truck. Uh, what we worked with the client to do was a consumer proposal. Okay. So as part of the consumer proposal, we let the dealership know that they're not going to get any more payments on this truck and they should come and seize it whenever they want. Um, but we also were able to reduce his other debt, the 11600 that he was just you know treading water on, making minimum payments sometimes, sometimes not. Uh, we actually did a consumer proposal for him to repay less than half of that. And that was just of the other debt that he had. It, was, it didn't include the truck at all. Did I get that right? That's right, because... He didn't even need to do a proposal for the truck. God. All we had to do was explain to him that if you stop paying on this truck, the provisions of the law, it's called seize or sue. And anybody listening out there that wants to do some Google research, just type in seize or sue in the province of BC. And you'll see that the law says um, that basically if you stop paying, they have to seize the vehicle from you and they cannot sue you for the shortfall. And that's different than almost every other province. I'm originally from Ontario, and if this example was happening in Ontario, I'd be saying if you stop making the payments, they're going to seize this truck, they're going to sell it, you know, for between thirty and forty thousand, and you're going to be on the hook for whatever is owed on that loan. It's a very bad situation. Right. The province of BC does not operate like that. Doesn't operate like that. So I bet that dealership after and here's okay, there's two points I want to make. First yeah. of all, because you are a licensed insolvency trustee, that's what Sands and Associates does. They're made up of a, a group of people who do this work every day for folks. Because you're federally regulated, you're the only ones that would have the ability or power to go to the dealership and say, this is the situation. You probably should just come and take your truck. Well, yes, yes and no. So we're the only people that can help with the other debts. So we're the only people that can do the consumer proposal um, to help the individual reduce the credit card debt that had built up. And we're often the only people that give people the information about seize or sue, because really who's making money in the situation here? Um, you know, I don't charge any money to give some free advice here and the dealership is losing money by taking the, the, the truck back. So if someone was working with a lawyer, they might get that advice, but they might pay for it. But, you know, essentially anybody could return their vehicle under the provisions of BCCs or sue. You don't have to necessarily work through a licensed insolvency trustee, but often a trustee is the person that actually makes you aware that you have these rights um, because there's really no other professional in the financial system that's unbiased, independent, and is responsible for giving you full information to help you make your decisions. And if I was that dealership, I'd be going, 
Darn, we just should have taken the truck back when the poor guy came in and said, look, I can't afford this thing, because the result was the same for them. Oh, yeah. When I think about, you know, who really lost in, in the situation. So, you know, yeah, the individual, um, his credit rating took a hit. He definitely learned a hard lesson and happier. He learned it at 20 rather than 30 or 40 because there's a lot more time to recover here. But definitely from the dealership point of view, they could have had the vehicle back, you know, brand new condition two days in. They ended up getting it back because they waited for three months of missed payments. They ended up getting it back, you know, three or four months in. And, you know, I know it wasn't trashed by any means, but there is wear and tear after a vehicle of a few months. So the dealership, you know, probably lost, you know, $10,000 or more out of this whole example. And hopefully it speaks to, you know, dealerships and individuals should realize there's a shared responsibility when they're issuing financing. And as much as the dealership wants to get paid, individuals do have the ability to stop paying and that would force the hand to either seize or sue. Such good information. If any of this resonates with you and you're thinking, man, I didn't know that. What about my situation? Go see Sands and Associates. Check out their website, sands-trustee.com. It's filled chock-a-block with good questions and lots of good answers. And that may then kind of move you to make that phone call and get some help. It's 1-800-661-3030 for that first free consultation. Just go see Blair. Tell him your situation and then move, and then move along from there or just to find an office near you. We'll be back with more right after this. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. For information on any of the services we talk about on the show, go to sands-trustee.com or call 1-800-661-3030 for that free consultation. On the line with us is Bethany Cam. She's a qualified insolvency counselor with Sands & Associates. She's got over five years of experience working in the personal debt help industry. She uh, provides counseling to clients in all the off- in the Abbotsford and Langley offices uh, for the one-on-one financial counseling sessions, which is what Sands and Associates offers. Bethany feels it's important to provide help without judgment and says, quote, through financial counseling, clients begin to feel empowered with knowledge of money management and most importantly, Hopeful. And Bethany, I can tell you that Blair and I talk about that hope all the time in this show because it feels so hopeless sometimes when somebody's walking yeah. in the door. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's talk about the counseling sessions. Yeah. So Bethany, thanks for joining us today. Um, why don't you start off don't just worry. telling us why do we have counseling sessions? You know, are, are these a mandatory part of bankruptcies and proposals? Yes. So they are mandatory. Um, they're required by the superintendent to attend two counseling sessions in a bankruptcy and a consumer proposal process. And the ad- objective of these counseling sessions is to help with overall financial rehabilitation. It's hopefully giving people the skills they need to ideally make a bankruptcy or a proposal a one-time occurrence in their lives. Okay. So you use the word, you know, financial rehab, so to, so to speak. So it's, you know, giving them skills and um, and techniques and tools to, to try to make sure, you know, again, it's one time they, they come through the door. Uh, what's the structure of, of the sessions? You know, I often have my clients be really concerned, you know, is this going to be a group situation where, um, you know, I'll tell my story and everyone else will tell their story and we'll, com- you know, compare stories or is, is it different than that? Right. Um, so these are one-on-one private sessions. Um, it's not a group setting. 
we do find it is beneficial to bring someone um, just that shares your finances with you just so you can be on the same page. Um, often like, like a husband or wife kind of, you think? Exactly. Yes. Yep. Common law, anything that, like that. Now, Bethany, um, what kind of, I mean, this has got to be a bit tough for people to walk in the door and have to sit down. How does it go for these folks? Well, it's a non-judgmental environment here. Um, We let everyone kind of talk, and I hope they go out of the sessions feeling very hopeful about their future and, like I say, their financial goals coming true. Now, I bet bet they do feel a lot more hopeful when they walk out the door. Yes. And, and Bethany, what what topics do you cover in the, the first counseling sessions? So in the first counseling session, it is um, the subject matter is specified in the law for each of the counseling sessions. So the first counseling session focuses on um, how to rebuild your credit, when to get back into credit, what cards are available. Um, so there's prepaid, secured, and unsecured. So we go over those in a little bit of detail so people understand. Um, we also go over spending plans, like needs versus wants. And then at the end, I really like to go over people's financial goals and dreams because I feel like people tend to forget about their dreams because when you're in financial hardship, they just don't seem in reach. So I really like to come back to those goals. Yeah, and what you said there, Bethany, kind of kind of hit me when you were talking about the needs versus wants. You know, I've had some people say, right. you know, that's really everything. You know, it's it's always figuring out, you know, what can I afford to do, what to, what I love to do. You know, how do those discussions right. usually go when you're talking about needs versus wants with clients? Well, we kind of write them down and we kind of go over some questions and we kind of go back to the cash. Um, if you don't have the cash, you don't usually buy it. Um, but mm, okay, yep, we kind of go over some questions of what they might think is a need or is a want. And are there some surprises? You know, someone really thought this is a need, and as you you start to drive down, you figure out, well, actually, it was more of a want than a need, and that's a bit of an insight, right? Yep, and also when they kind of realize, they say, hey, you know what? We might actually not need it right now. We can wait, even for Christmas or Mother's Day or something. So it makes it a little bit more special as well. Okay. And then you talked about, you know, financial goals and, and, and dreams. And, you know, Bethany, you and I do different things at different points with, with clients. So, you know, when people come into me, their, their big goal and their dream is just to, you know, make the pain stop, you know, to stop the collection calls, right. you know, to give them a sense that, you know, they're not a horrible person. They can actually move forward in, in their life. And, you know, sometimes they have some, you know, dim idea that eventually they'd love to be able to buy, you know, a house or a condo or something. I'm curious, yeah. you know, how are the types of goals that, that you sit down and develop with clients? You know, how do they align or not? align with those types of things that people usually say when they start the process? Yep. So some are, you know, they want to get into a down payment again. They want their home. Um, Some are, they want to have Christmas paid off. So it's not all put on credit cards. So that's a goal. They they like having Christmas and they want to be able to have the Christmas presents for the grandchildren and, you know, their spouses and all of that. You know, it, it really ranges on on everyone, but there's lots of different goals. Some of trips because they haven't taken a trip in six or seven years. Um, so it really everyone's different. <laughs> Bethany, is there sort of um, a, not a set list, but some general questions that uh, the people come in to your counseling session with and and really want to focus on and get answered? Yeah, so there there are a few that definitely um, stand out to me. So uh, some of the common questions is, does it take seven years for them to rebuild their credit? Mm, um, does it? And, and, nope. 
Um, so it is six years after discharge is how long it stays on your Equifax and TransUnion report. Um, however, you can start rebuilding from the get-go right when you sign the papers, you can start rebuilding your credit. And those are the things we go over in the counseling session. So you don't have to um, wait, you know, a few years. You know, as you said, you can really start to take positive steps right away. Right. Okay. And that's very encouraging for people to hear because um, they're under the ins- assumption that, you know, they can't rebuild if it's still on their Equifax and TransUnion report. Yeah, I really love that part um, of the thinking around uh, consumer proposal for folks that they're mm-hmm. automatically rebuilding their credit as soon as as soon as they start because there's a documentation that they've taken action and they're taking very significant important steps to uh, fix this debt issue and I just love I just love that I mean that to me is part of the hope that you guys bring for folks. And then another question that they ask is, do their employers or their friends find out about the process? Um, and nope, uh, it is a confidential process. Mm-hmm. The only time a friend or employer would find out is if their wages are being garnished, um, so their employer would know. Um, and if their friend owed them money and they had them on the creditor list, um, then they would be notified. But this is confidential, so not everyone knows about it. Oh, that's great info, Bethany. And, you know, we're, we're down to about the last minute and a half here or so. Okay. I'm, I'm curious, uh, you've been doing counseling for a number of years here, and it's always interesting to me, what do people find really surprising? So I wonder if for a first counseling session, you know, what do you find that your clients are, are really surprised by that you when you relay it to them? Yeah, um, I think they are very surprised at how quickly they can get back into credit and start rebuilding, um, you know, their credit. Um, I find they're surprised at how common of a process this is. The insolvency, insolvency statistics in Canada for 2017 were 122,198 people in Canada wow. to do a bankruptcy and a consumer proposal. So then they feel like they're not alone. Um, and then the last one is, I think they're very surprised that their goals are achievable. We break it down into how much they have to save, how long they have to save the money, and we break it in down into how much they have to save each day. And I feel like people are very surprised and very hopeful when they come out of the sessions. Bethany, I think you must do some wonderful work with these folks because... Uh you just ha- you're so empathetic and you understand the process and you sort of understand uh, who they are when they're walking in the door and, and have experienced so many positive things. Um, Bethany is just one of the several uh, staff uh, at uh, Sands and Associates. Remember uh, the website, nice and easy to remember, it's sands-trustee.com. You can give them a call. It's a 1-800 number. If you're interested, if any of this information is resonating with you and you'd like some more, their number is 1-800-661-3030 for that first free consultation, as well as to find an office near you. Thanks, Bethany. Thank you very much for having me. Have a great day. The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. 
Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.